Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. This is the first ever How I Lawyer podcast live event. My name is Jonah Perlin. I'm the host and creator of How I Lawyer, and I'm excited to welcome back two of my friends, Jordana Confino, who was a guest on episode 110, and Ellie Albrecht, who was a guest on episode 87. We are here live at DLA with a live studio audience, which is crazy, crazy to think after starting this in my parents' bedroom three years ago. The topic for tonight's conversation is positive lawyering in the practice of law. And unlike most of my episodes where I share the stories of folks in the legal profession, tonight's episode will be dedicated to a discussion of one of the most important topics in our profession today, lawyer well-being. In recent years, lawyers have been speaking out to move the legal community toward well-being while being successful. But can we do it all? Can we actually maintain it or better yet even cultivate well-being while working within the competitive legal industry? Frankly, I can't think of two better guests to have this conversation with. They need no introduction. And if you need a full introduction, I have a 50-minute episode with each. But I'll just give you the high-level bullet points. Ellie previously worked at a big law firm here in Washington, D.C., and is now a partner at SMB Law, where he represents buyers and sellers of businesses. He's also a leading voice on lawyer well-being in practice and being a law dad. Jordana is a lawyer and expert on positive lawyering. She previously served as the inaugural Dean of Professionalism at Fordham Law, where she remains an adjunct professor. And she'll soon be one of the headliners at Stetson University College of Law's Campus to Careers Conference. She now coaches and trains lawyers and law students on how they can harness their and science-backed strategies of positive psychology to reach their highest potential. Before we begin, we need to thank our sponsors. First, we have the Legal Mentor Network, one of the great organizations, I think, of our day in that it is a free nonprofit way for any lawyer who wants to be a mentor or get a mentor to be a mentor or get a mentor today. Our kind hosts of DLA Piper, whose Washington office we are sitting in now, and finally Law Pods, who help with logistics, and event sponsor Lateral Hub Job Board and Summer Associate Hub. If you're an associate looking to lateral, check out 200 job postings from 40 top-tier firms and browse and apply for free at lateralhub.com. And with that, let's get started. So I thought we'd start by asking you each to share a little bit about how you became interested in positive lawyering even if that's not exactly where you started in our profession. And we'll start with Jordana. Sure. So first of all, just thank you, Jonah, for doing this and bringing us all together in person in real life. I'm so happy right now to be with all of you amazing people and delighted that you are celebrating the third year anniversary of this amazing podcast on this topic, which I am biased. I think and agree is the most important topic for lawyers to be thinking about in general because it precedes everything else. How did I come to realize that? Because I did not believe that at all when I was in law school or first starting out in practice. So I am not now the positive lawyering professor 
and coach because this stuff comes naturally to me. It's actually completely the opposite of that. And anyone who listened to the first episode I did with you will know that when I was in law school and starting out in practice, I wore my perfectionism as a badge of honor, could only be described as a raging overachiever and really completely believed that the road to success, which I was very determined to run down, could only be achieved by throwing myself 150% into my work, which I viewed as requiring excluding literally everything that we're going to be talking about today. And that seemed to work really well for a few years. I was extremely objectively successful on a lot of metrics and felt like I was dying inside and really didn't see any reason to do anything about that until I hit just a real breaking point, at which point I was so demoralized and disenchanted, but also actually starting to notice that starting to impact my ability to show up and perform in the way that I wanted, that I finally had this if not now, when moment. And it was discovering, I discovered positive psychology, Googling how to be happy because I was that desperate at that point. And I discovered positive psychology, which notwithstanding having been a psych major, I didn't know was a thing. I took a course on it for my own edification. I really wanted to know. And everything that I learned completely blew my mind. And I realized that my a whole approach to what would make me happy in life, but also what would make me successful and effective was completely backwards. And that the vast majority of lawyers and law students that I've been surrounded with were just as ignorant as I had been in that respect. And so it was at that point, very, very early in my legal career that I decided that the most important work for me to do was actually share this critically important information with other lawyers and law students so that they could not only avoid burning out and fleeing the profession as I felt I was at that point, though I've obviously stayed very much within the profession, but actually build satisfying, sustainably successful careers in law, which to me, honestly, hadn't even seemed like a possibility. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now. And I guess my only follow-up to that is when you had that realization, right? And obviously you have realizations that happen in the instant but they've often been growing for some time. How did you deal with that moment? And it doesn't have to be as big a change as you made of sort of doing something adjacent to law instead of practicing law. But how did you get comfortable with making that pivot, especially early in your career? Yeah. And so it's really funny because I remember my law school friends at the time asking me that same question. And I think that the reason that I burned out so early was because I was just so intense on the perfectionist, overachiever, ignoring literally every aspect of my well-being scale of things that I kind of hit that point. But I just remember there was a time where initially I saw the writing on the wall and well, we can, we'll come back to this, but basically one thing that really shook me and opened my eyes was I did this on my therapist couch, I'll never forget, this was still during law school, I did this very basic values discovery exercise where basically she asked me to look at a big list of values, identify what I was doing, or identify my top five, what was most important to me, and then think about how what I was doing with my time and my energy was furthering those values. So just to put things in context, I graduated with straight honors from Yale Law School, which I think like less than 2% of people do. I worked insanely hard. So I was devoting an insane and unhealthy amount of time and effort into 
work that I then identified when I did this exercise in terms of my professional goals was not only not furthering my values, but was actually directly contrary to them. So I was like, hmm, that's a little bit uncomfortable to sit with. I'm killing myself for something I don't actually care about. That doesn't make sense. But at first, there was a period of time where I'm like, in 10 years, once I am the chief of the criminal unit at the prosecutor's office, because that was the goal that I had created for Totally half Baked Reasons, then I can switch and be happy. And then it was, or maybe five years, once I have kids, then I can stop and be happy. And I had committed to these two years of clerkships that I was going to do. I already at this point knew that that was not in line with what I really wanted to do long term. I wasn't going to renege on them. But all of a sudden there was just this like a year. This is your life. This isn't a dress rehearsal. Like we don't know how long we have, but also a year is a really long time. And but the other thing that I saw is it was really this if not now when moment. The only thing that was preventing me from stepping off and towards what I knew would actually be more fulfilling for me was this like horribly terrifying fear of stepping off and of the path of shoulds and doing something different. And that fear was terrifying, but I realized there was nothing that was ever going to make it less terrifying because every time you achieve a gold star, which is you think is the gold star that you need, there is immediately instantaneously the next one. And I just saw that. I remember I was seventh is horrible doing, but I was having nightmares that I was clerking on the Supreme Court because that was the next logical step <laughs> for the path I was supposed to do. And I'm like, there's always the next thing. And so if I can't make this step now, I don't think I'll ever be able to make it. And so, yeah, it was kind of just like bite the bullet. Wow. But lots of little steps that you can take without taking a giant leap, which we'll talk about later. Absolutely. Ellie. Yeah, thank you. And uh, thanks for having me. The last time I was in this room, I was watching Madeleine Albright sitting where I'm sitting and talking about Middle East foreign policy. What we're going to talk about tonight is far more important and impactful on people in our profession. So proud to be here. And my... Go ahead. I was going to say glad to have you. This is the difference about doing it live. (laughs) Yeah, this is great. I'm really excited to do this live. I think there's a lot of back and forth that we can have and a lot of conversations we can have around these topics. And for me, like Jordana, I didn't start out believing in positive lawyering. I didn't start out believing in healthy lawyering or balance at all. In fact, I believed it was a farce. And when I heard people talk about healthy lawyering and mental health and law and balance, I thought it was an excuse for lazy people not to practice and not to want to work hard. And I believe in working hard, right? I served as a soldier in the Special Forces. And when I got out, I was dedicated to providing a life for my family that was economically comfortable, where my family wouldn't have to worry about money the way I worried about it growing up. And so I felt like my conception of a masculinity, of being a man, was providing for my family and that if I could do that and give them a good life, I'd achieve my goal. And that was my role in life. And we have a running joke in my family that I so often say that when I die, right, and I have a tombstone, I wanted to say on my tombstone, this man dedicated his life to his family. And my comfort and my well-being and my balance is absolutely irrelevant to my role of providing for my family. So like Jordana, I was type A, dedicated to school. I got my 
Associates of Arts degree in psychology as well from the Community College of Baltimore. And I then went to Hopkins and Georgetown and did well and walked into DLA Piper as a summer associate uh, many years ago. And I continued that way and then lateral to Gibson Dunn after a year and was an M&A associate there and routinely exceeded my hours by a significant margin. And I remember at one time coming into the house and it was a particularly difficult stretch and having a conversation with my wife. And I told her, and things were difficult between us because I was 100% dedicated to my career and we weren't able to have the meaningful relationship that she wanted to have and I wanted to have. And I said to her, is it not sufficient that I'm providing for the family? Like, is it not enough that like we have a beautiful house and we have Teslas in the driveway and we have a nanny and we have a house cleaner every day? And like, how am I not achieving my role? How am I not doing my duties? And she said to me, I'd rather live in a hut with you than in a mansion without you. And it hit me so hard because what I thought was the goal of providing and achieving that going into a law firm with my name on the door was not actually achieving anything. And so for me, just like Jordana, it hit me hard and I had my breaking point at that point and I started to reevaluate everything and, and recalibrated my goals. So whereas my compass was dedicated to one direction, I had to recalibrate it and realize that my goals needed to be focused on a different direction. What's really powerful, I think, in both of your answers is how value-driven they ultimately were. And I don't think that's something that's always front brain for people who end up going into the law, right? We are rule-driven. We are success-driven. As I tell my law students, right, you don't get to law school unless you've been put on a bunch of bell curves where you were on one end of the bell curve, then they re-expanded the bell curve and you had to get back on the same end of the bell curve. And guess what? Then they created a new one. And sometimes the values piece gets lost or is underdeveloped. And developing that is such an important first step because without that North Star, you don't know where you're going. I guess the question becomes, values are one thing, tactics and ways of actually making this happen is another one. And I guess I'd be curious if we could talk a little bit about sort of the specific tools or strategies or practices where someone wrote in as a question in advance, what's the one thing I can do to bring positive lawyering to my practice? So let's go there. Jordan, you want to go first again? Yeah, no, it's such a fabulous question. And just on the values piece, like I really think it starts and ends with values because I think when we talk about success, what is success? And I've, over the years, I decided I've kind of redefined success for me, that it's living a life that's driven by my values rather than by fear. And I think that a lot of the workaholism and perfectionism and the well-being sacrificing kind of approach to capital S success in in the legal profession and in any profession is driven by fear, fear of not being good enough, fear of not doing enough, fear of not being worthy. And so we act out of this fear in these instinctive ways that we think will help us and really actually often are preventing us from having the highest level of the capital S success, but also like at the end of the day, what does success even mean to Mm. us? And so I think that having a sense of how can I play to win rather than just playing not to lose, which I feel like is that fear-based thing. You need to know what winning means and different people's values. I think that Ellie and I have 
certainly overlapping values, but that doesn't mean that they're the right values. Like there are no right or wrong values. What matters is that like they're your intrinsically mm. held values. So I think that identifying that and then using that as a compass and recalibrating yourself. And I think it's over time is a really important starting place. In terms of the tactics though, I feel like they fall into, I would say three general categories and we can go more into them. So one of them is just the values in terms of like figure out what your values are because that first step is a, a lot more complex than you might think. So a lot of people have no idea what their core values are. You really need to like dig under to like, what do you really care about? What is your highest use as opposed to, I think we put on these identities of what we think should be our value. And then we don't realize, you know, maybe that's not actually our core value. So that's one bucket. The second one is basic needs. So Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's something in psychology, but basically sleep, movement, and belonging, connections, those like are just things that at a base level we need in order to function optimally, both emotionally and cognitively and physically. Mm -hmm. And so making sure that you're getting your non-negotiable necessary amounts of those three things is one thing. And I could talk about like strategically, how do you do that even when you're working in the context of a super high demanding job? But then the last one, and this, Jonah, you know, and anyone who listened to my episode knows is my, I think, the starting place. And I think this will be my answer to the person who said, what is one thing? Start working on your relationship with yourself and how you're talking to yourself in your head. And really, I think 99% of lawyers um, are trained and programmed to relate to themselves in this ruthlessly self-critical, fear-based manner. Like we motivate ourselves by criticizing ourselves, by doubting ourselves. And that's how we think that we're going to push ourselves forward. And the science shows that's actually completely backwards. And really self-compassion will actually not only make us happier and healthier, but so much more effective in everything that we do. And I say that as the starting place because that is something that will help you literally regardless of where you are. So you could have the most toxic boss and toxic workplace in the world. And if you do, you should leave that job, of course. But your situation can be enhanced in the meanwhile while you're figuring out how you're going to get out by doing this for yourself. And you could leave that job and go to the best place in the world. And if you're still tearing yourself apart from the inside out, you're still not going to, you know, enjoy the well-being that you want. And I say this having done it myself. So after I left practicing law, I moved into legal education. Literally couldn't be on, felt like I couldn't be honoring my values more. I was teaching positive psychology for law students. And I burned out because I was still kind of attacking myself from the inside. And so we can talk more mm -hmm. about that. But I think that third piece, like focus on how you're talking and relating to yourself is essential. Both tactical and leaves a lot to think about. Really important. Ellie? It's such a critical question because you can have your ideology and you can have your theories of how to achieve balance and how to find a better life as a lawyer, but not like when it comes down to brass tacks, what do you do? I always say, Jordana took the first thing I say, which is set your goal, set your compass, right? You need to have a clearly defined goal and vision for what life looks like once you've achieved that balance. It, it'll never be achieved. It'll never be achieved. But you need to have that North Star that you set for yourself. Jordana said that perfectly. I'm not going to expound on that. But the second thing 
is start being loud about it. Start telling your friends, start posting about it, start telling yourself, start telling your kids, your wife, your parents, right? I remember a few years back, I was at a big law firm, private equity M&A. M&A is one of the most competitive areas of the law. Private equity M&A is like M&A on steroids. So everybody who becomes a partner in private equity M&A at a big law firm serving clients like Platinum Equity and Apollo and Carlisle are like a thousand percent committed to what they're doing and exclusive of everything else. The, the job comes first. And I had started working with a very prominent M&A partner a few years back, and it was a, a huge success to work for this partner. And I remember having gone through this breaking point that we talked about during the last question, deciding that I was going to start voicing it, start telling people that I wanted to be engaged with my family, or at least in the very least, start telling people about that I do have a family and that I do have a faith, right? It's amazing so. how people don't even share that information. It's, I, you're absolutely right. You're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. So I remember one night, it was about 7 p.m. at night, and this partner huh. said, hey, I need you to do this. And we got off a call and he said, how quickly can you turn this? And I said, well, I'm putting my kids to sleep. And he was like, what? I was like, I'm putting my kids to sleep. And he's like, oh, you have kids? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And he's like, I had no idea. And, and we had done deals together for a couple of years. And I spoke more to him than anybody else in my life. And he didn't know I had a family because I wasn't vocal about it. And I remember speaking to another junior associate and saying, talking about how I wanted to go on a hike with my family on Sunday. And she said, oh, I have a family also. And I said, Tell me about your family, <laughs> right? Let's talk about it. And then she came back to me a few days later and she said, I've started talking about my family as well at the law firm. And this has two effects. One, it strengthens our goals, right? It makes us stronger in achieving, in doing what we need to do, like stepping off of a call to put our kids to bed. But it also gathers people around us that agree with our values. So I say one of the best things that has happened since I started posting publicly on LinkedIn about my values and posting relatively personal things that are not easy to talk about publicly is that I've gathered around me people that share my values, people that are dedicated, deeply dedicated to having a successful career. And I'm not willing to sacrifice being an amazing M&A lawyer and building a successful practice. That's super important to me but also have other values that are important to them. And so I've gathered this whole community around me just by being like extra aggressively vocal about those values. That actually reminds me of something that I speak a lot about when I'm talking about perfectionism and workaholism and how we can come just have our entire identity bound up in it. I think for lawyers in general, it's very much, it's an identity. So it's not what you do, it's who, it's who you are. And the problem is, is that I think when we only view ourselves as having that one aspect of us, the stakes for not being perfect in that regard or not giving 100% of ourselves to that is so high because there's nothing else. And it's kind of like a chicken and an egg thing. If your whole identity revolves around this thing, you'll give it 100% because you're so desperate to preserve it. But then by giving it 100%, there's nothing left in your life 
or and you, you don't feel valued in any way besides that. And it's like, just like Ellie said, by kind of opening up that part of yourself, it also empowers and emboldens other people to do the same thing. And then by the way, all of the motivational psychology and organizational psychology research shows that if you have members of your team connecting and bonding on these human levels, you will also actually work so much more effectively together as a team. So it will also turbocharge the engagement and team morale and output of your team, even if you're working less hours, because, you know, it's now acceptable to tuck your kid in for 20 minutes at night. And so I think this humanizing of like ourselves and then as a byproduct, like our workplace too. I mean, it helps in terms of cultural change slowly, um, but for sure. Yeah, and I think that's such an amazing point from Jordana. And just to expound on it, I don't think any of us are advocating that we should work less, right? Well, maybe you are, but I'm not. Maybe we should all be working less, but I'm not advocating. (laughs) That's a different live episode of the podcast. That's fine. That is one of those moonshot goals right? Actually working fewer hours is to me, it seems almost unattainable at this point for lawyers. So I want to go for those goals that are attainable, but it's about being the most effective and efficient. And when I'm deeply connected with all the different parts of my life, my family, my faith, my physical exercise, I am a much better lawyer and I serve my clients much better. I'm doing better work in a more efficient time frame. So I think Jordana was an amazing point. So I want to push back, right? That's my job as the host to push back and ask the hard question because there's a tension, a massive tension in everything you're both saying, which is you keep adding things that are going to be parts that have to be part of your life, but we're also not willing to make the trade, right? So to the skeptical listener, how do you set boundaries to make this happen? And maybe boundaries is the wrong word, but I think it's the word that people like to think about. And I'll just say... I think this is both easier and harder now in the age of 24-7, 365 text messaging and email than maybe it was for the prior generation. I think the prior generation had it harder in many ways that they had to sit at their desk just waiting for work in a way that we don't. But when you can work at all times and you want to carve out movement and sleep and connection how do you practically set those boundaries? I think you started getting there by saying, talk about them. But what else can you do to build that into your career? Ellie, you want to go? Sure. I don't believe in boundaries. So Hot take, everybody. Hot, hot take. take. Hot take. Don't tweet this out. I'm going to get dragged for it. <laughs> but I actually, I previewed this concept on your podcast on How I Lawyer. The last time I was on, it was something I was thinking a lot about is I've tried boundaries and I've tried... I obviously, I observe Shabbat, I'm an observant Jew, so I shut my phone off for 25 hours, Friday night to Saturday night. So I do create boundaries in that sense. But throughout the week, I tried to have boundaries and it never worked. And then it created resentment because I kept violating my boundaries and I kept encroaching on the time and I would go to work out and I'd get a call that was like extra important. And I tried to turn my phone on silent, but I was still checking my emails. And then it created this sense of agitation and resentment almost at myself for violating those boundaries I set. So then I stepped back and about the time we had the last podcast, I thought to myself, there's a different way. And I'm going to call this the full integration where all parts of my life are fully integrated and have different levels of priority at different time. So I have my phone on all the time, right? Even when I'm putting my kids to bed, I have my phone on. And I talk to my kids about the deals I'm doing 
and they know that X deal is extremely important because it's closing tonight or tomorrow. And because I've tied them in and I've fully integrated my family, they are supportive of me having to step away for a few minutes at bedtime to have that call. And similarly, I do that with my clients and my work colleagues where I fully integrate them. I, I try to bring them under this tent of Ellie's world, right? And Ellie's world has lots of different components and everybody should be able to see those different parts of my world. And then we're all on the same team. And then I don't have to draw boundaries and put my clients in a different tent and put my family in a different tent and then try to run back and forth. And I remember driving back from DLA's office when I was a young associate and getting to my house and parking my car and just sitting in my car and thinking to myself, like, I got to get into dad mode. Like, I got to leave work mode. I got to get into dad mode. I just like couldn't. I couldn't. I was like, my head was still wrapped up with work. So... I have found this to work for me. And I found that my clients are super supportive when I'm dealing with my family. Like my daughter was going through a health issue for a while and is still going through an ongoing health issue. And my clients were incredibly supportive. I was stuck in Israel. I couldn't get any flights out when we took a vacation to Israel uh, six weeks ago. And I had my clients calling the State Department to try to help me get out. So I'm not sure this is the right way, but for me, and my personal life and wanting to be an M&A lawyer that works at the highest levels of M&A, this works for me. Tordana? Oh, I have so many thoughts. Um, <laughs> I thought you might. I have so many thoughts. And so initially I was like, what? no boundaries. But I think that we're using different language to describe different things. So I'm going to partially disagree and partially agree. And I love how that works for you. Like that also sounds like you have an amazing client. So I'm so happy for you. Um, and I'm so happy for them that they have you. So I'm with you on them. When you say you don't do boundaries, you do this integration. I say that about, I don't think there's any like work-life balance because I feel like that's like, oh, it needs to be perfectly balanced between work and life. And, you know, if I'm ever spending more time at the office than I am in my personal life, then I should feel guilty. And I think it's very much integration and or harmony. And I think that there's, I you said there's different seasons for different things. And I think that there'll be times when you invest less in your well-being and more in work and or more in your family or more in your relationship with your spouse versus your kids. And I think all of that stuff needs to be fluid. I think if we take that, oh, it needs to be this perfectly balanced approach, that's actually another, it's like almost like perfectionist fear-based shoulds in a different way. I do think that boundaries and being able to draw boundaries is really important. I'm like a big fan of Brene Brown's idea that like boundaries are bridges to better relationships. And I think I was going, the wheels that were turning in my head is like, is this a gendered thing? Are boundaries, being able to draw boundaries more important as a woman? I think that something makes me think yes, because of also just this, the people pleasing tendency and the expectations of women. I think making generalizations, there's different. Um, and that Women more so than men, if you don't draw boundaries, you're going to get steamrolled in a different way in general. Um, so I think that being able to draw those boundaries is really important. Do they need to be firm, inflexible boundaries? Absolutely not. And I think that that's the same. Like I joke with my clients and my students, like don't try to perfect your perfectionism recovery and then beat yourself up because you're not doing self-compassion at the times that you said that you wanted to do guilty, the Guilty, guilty, 100%. Right? Guilty. I do the same. It's funny, except for like, it's so... This is like that happens a lot. And so I think what I will say is 
being able to, especially when you're communicating with other people in terms of what they're asking for you, because the law is a profession where people will give and they will give and they will give until you draw a boundary and tell them. And when I say give, I mean, give assignments, not right. <laughs> so they will take and they will take. take. When take I say yeah. give, I mean, take, um, right. they will take and they will take and they will take until you draw a boundary in some way. And I'm thinking back to what you were said initially, Jonah, where, where I thought the question was going, but I think it's still related, which is, you know, well, you say that all these things are important, but also you have to do all these other things. So like, that's not really fair. And the truth is, is the law practicing it and being in law school is never fair because just like you are expected to study and gain mastery of way more information that you could possibly master as you prepare for your four 1L exams, you cannot possibly do all of the work that's on your plate are being given to your highest possible capacity and the highest standard. So something has got to give. But the problem is, is that if we don't choose intentionally to say, oh, well, I'm going to carve out this time that will, yeah, it'll make me feel good. It'll make me happier. But also, as we now know, as we've addressed, cultivating your well-being is actually essential for your performance as well, both in the long, immediately, but especially if you want a career that's going to last more than a year or two until you burn out or if you want to go beyond, and this is something that we haven't explicitly addressed, there's a difference between being like a worker bee associate where you're billing the most hours and your core value is in billing the most hours to when once you go up to higher levels of work in leadership roles, you need to be able to think and produce and ideate in a way that you cannot do if you are mentally and physically running on your lowest battery. So in order to do the high level work that will be expected of you, if you want to succeed in that way, something has got to give. So you're making these trade-offs, whether you do so intentionally. So if someone is, I think a way that boundaries comes in, and this is something I work a lot with my clients that are, you know, I don't want to say no to this thing. And we always think more is better is in terms of prioritizing and making clear like, well, I could do this, but if I do this, then I'm not going to be able to do this. So like, what is the priorities? Or like, if you want me to do this, then should I not be doing that? But you also have to be able to work that in with your own stuff too. And so one just very tactical thing is, I mean, going back to what Ellie said about, I'm not saying work appreciably less, but what I do think is essential is identify like, what are your non-negotiables? Like, what do you need at a bare minimum in order to function optimally? So like, sleep. What is the amount that you need? It's generally average seven to nine, but it, it varies for hours, but it varies for people. Like put that in your schedule. Similarly, like your 20 minutes of movement or your 30 minutes to connect with your family, like, or your, whatever the things are, put them in your schedule. Because if you don't put them in, in your schedule at the outset, there will never be a good thing. And you can be flexible. I think you should be flexible if, you know, something comes up and you can't do that at that time but then reschedule it. And so if it's hmm. like in, if you're putting it in at the beginning, then, and making a commitment to then reschedule it if you need to, like at least it's there. But if you just wait for the good time, there will literally never be a good time and you'll never get to it. Also, I think there's this huge fear about whether these things will actually produce some of the efficiency gains that they really will. And again, I'm talking about bare minimum non-negotiables here. Like, of course, we want to aim to have more than that, but at the bare minimum, like, and that is so much more than what a lot of people are doing. The other thing I will say, and then I will stop speaking, is a lot of this stuff doesn't even need to take a lot of time. So if we talk about the value of high quality connections, I said earlier that 
connections and personal relationships are one of like the basic psychological needs. Yes, of course, spending a full day unplugged with your family, that's amazing. But you can have a meaningful connection in five minutes with someone. I think that there's this mentality that we get that like we have to turn off all of these things and just put on blinders and we have to turn off our humanity basically while we go through the work in order to get through it most efficiently and effectively. So then we get to this end point where we can be a happy human on the other side. And I think that just like creating some spaces, and I guess this is going back to the integration piece too, throughout is a really like a powerful and effective way to do that too, without even adding some time in. Is the problem the billable hour, right? I mean, not to sort of break it down to one thing, but for many lawyers, most lawyers perhaps, there is some extent where time is what we track. We don't track successes. I mean, not true for all lawyers, but certainly for those in private practice. And do we need to sort of be billing our our personal time as well? Because how else are we going to get it on our calendar? I mean, this wasn't the question on, on the list, but it's just something that was screaming to me as the two of you were talking. The billable hour is toxic. There's no two ways about it. It's absolutely toxic. For those who can't see, people are silently cheering in the audience, which is the fun part about having an audience. Sorry, go ahead. It's horrendous. To sit at the end of the day and calculate your life based on six-minute increments and to know that to do better and to achieve more, you need to spend more of your life billing is toxic, and it creates terrible incentives for lawyers. There's no two ways about it. I joined this new law firm and we started this new M&A boutique practice predicated on destroying the billable hour. We don't bill by the hour and I haven't billed by the hour for the last six, seven months. We bill fixed amounts and we create real partnerships with clients and I still work my butt off. So I don't know that is the panacea. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think the real problem is that lawyers are in a service industry we're dedicated to serving clients at a high level. We charge a lot for that service. I think eliminating the billable hour for me has impacted my life for the better. It has. There's no question about it. I am a happier person now that I don't bill by the hour. It's not the full solution, though. Mm -hmm. It's not the full solution. I think the solutions that Jordana has been coaching on and speaking on and that positive psychology, I think that is the rest of the solution. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. It went through my head is it is a massive intractable problem. Um, and I say intractable because the vast majority of law firms aren't doing anything with it. It's like the curve in law schools. If the billable hour is the equivalent of the curve in, in law schools, it is so toxic and doesn't make any sense. The curve makes even less sense the billable hour because the billable hour isn't even in the best interest of the client. It, it just makes no sense at all. But the curve is terrible too. So we should get rid of both. But I think that there's a lot of problems and there, there's issues. There's a lot of really entrenched, deeply entrenched cultural issues. And so query, again, it's another chicken and egg problem. What came first, the horrible culture in the legal profession and in law schools brought more broadly or these things that then gave rise to them? I think that they're probably connected. So like the cutthroat nature of law school, the cutthroat competitive stuff. Hmm. I mean, that prop that comes from the curve, um, at least in large part. And then similarly, the fact that 
there's no feelings of people don't give each other the time of day in law firms because they feel like they don't have time to invest in relationships. That's probably tied to the bill of wire. But like Ellie said, you know, the time pressures will still be there regardless. So I think that getting rid of those things would do a lot. But I think that it's really a rewiring of leadership training norms and expectations and practices surrounding like vulnerability, humanizing the workplace, rewarding and encouraging positive behaviors as a sign of strength and wisdom rather than weakness. Because I think that there's still so many people that will look at like belonging and inclusion or the mental health programs or the positive psychology programs as like fluffy weakness for and like the thing is is like this will freaking turbocharge your performance as well as like the, and I always say like health and happiness can be an afterthought for you that's fine and the reason I say that is because when I was in law school I didn't care about my health and happiness I just wanted to be successful and you know what everything that I do and I teach and I coach on now will make you more successful by the way it'll also make you healthier and happier and so like recognizing that those things are so powerful but in all seriousness like it's so it's all just so backwards. I think it would be a starting place. I mean, I don't think that we're going to get there anytime soon, which is why I barely focus on it because I think that there's so much other lower hanging fruit. Like, so if you, if I go into any big law firm and say, get rid of your billable hour, they're not going to. But if you say, Hey, by the way, the science on work engagement shows that you will get so much better in terms of quality and quantity work out of your associates if you give them a slight smidgen sense of autonomy and help them understand the value of their work rather than just slicing off this teeny corner of a case and giving it to them and then not giving them any feedback on how they do. If you make them feel like a human, like they matter, which by the way, you can do them like three minutes a day if you like smile and say how are you consistently and you know like little things like this which you can do on the clock on the billable hour like all of that will get you so much higher performance and higher retention than whatever bonus you're throwing out there like let's start there because I think that would actually make a difference and is doable yeah and what I love about that answer from both of you is I also don't think the billable hour is going away. If my dean is listening, I don't think the curve is going away either. But I think it's easy to blame those things. And yes, they may be part of the challenge, but you don't have to necessarily change them. And even if you do, they may not be the full solution, I think is what I'm hearing you both say. I mean, just to piggyback on what Jordana just said, I was sort of reflecting over Thanksgiving about my time in practice And I was thinking about how many emails I received, right? Tens of thousands of emails, certainly in my several years in big law. I only remember one. I only remember one email from those three and a half years of my life. And it was an email that was one sentence that said, thank you. You changed this case this week. And I really appreciate it. I remember where I was when I received it. I remember the partner I received it from. I then went to battle for that partner more than I ever have in a work setting for any person because I felt seen. And I didn't know that that was sort of my professional love language being seen. (laughs) But it was. It changed my whole mindset when I got noticed as really being a big part of a case when frankly I was really junior and I could only have that sliver and my sliver mattered and somebody important noticed and that mattered to me. 
And so I couldn't not share that story because it's been sort of front brain. You know, we're getting towards the end of our time already, which I can't imagine. I have two more questions left. And one is, I think, a really hard one and one that maybe we've been dancing around, which is that positive lawyering in our life, we can only own so much. That lawyers often work in organizations with people who may not see eye to eye. And what some people end up doing, and maybe this will be your advice, I don't know, is they go find an organization where the people have a similar value structure to the one they have. But is that the only option when we're in organizations that maybe don't recognize the importance of the skills and the practices we've been talking about? Ellie? Because I believe that every response should be a story. I That's why you're a good podcast guest. <laughs> I used to speak and my wife never heard me speak. And she always used to say, I hear you speak all the time. Why do I have to come to hear you speak? But then she did come once and she heard me speak and she said, why don't you tell any stories? And I said, you're right. I should tell some stories. So now I tell, try to tell as many stories as possible because I think that's how we learn and remember things. And Jonah's story about his one email. I mean, that's a very powerful story. I started posting publicly on LinkedIn initially because I was so frustrated that I wasn't, that I didn't feel like my workplace was as human as I wanted it to be. And I remember coming home and telling my wife and the source of all wisdom for me. And she said, when you're talking to the partner, why don't you just like, you know, talk about what you like to do? And I said, we bill by the hour. Our clients are paying over a thousand dollars for me to be on the phone with this partner that I can't just talk to him about my life. It just doesn't work that way. He's not interested in hearing. And so she said, well, why don't you just post on LinkedIn because you're connected with them on LinkedIn. And when that partner is sitting on the toilet at 6.30 in the morning, he's going to see your face and your family and he's not going to have a choice to humanize you. So that's how I started posting on LinkedIn. So I did that, and I felt like I could really create a change in big law. And, and I feel like I did achieve some change, right? I impacted people who impacted people who impacted people, and I get people messaging me that they listen to How I Lawyer a podcast, and they've been impacted by that, and that makes me feel amazing. But after a few years in big law of trying to impact my environment, I still didn't feel like we had a humane environment. And... I still remember coming up for my end of the year, like end of the year evaluation, which I absolutely hated every single year. I hated, I just was so agitated that I have an end of the year evaluation. And so I got to the last end of the year evaluation and they said to me, can you maybe post a little bit less about your family? And at that point, I thought to myself, I have made absolutely no impact on my environment. Big law is the same big law it was when I came in six years prior, when I walked in with bright eyes and when I started posting and thinking that like I was going to really change things. So my response to that question, long-winded response with multiple stories, is that we can impact change on an individual level. When I was on How I Lawyer podcast last time, I felt like I could really make a change within the industry, within law, within big law. I've lost a little bit of that hope, and that's what caused me to leave big law and try to create a law firm from the outside that we can then impact the legal industry through a different paradigm of a law firm. So 
all that to say, I think we should try. I think we're impacting people that we know and impacting people on a one-on-one -on -one basis. I'm a little bit disenchanted with changing the legal industry. Yeah, I think I'm, if the question is, can we individually change the legal industry? I agree with Elliot. I don't think we can. Can you change, might you be able to change the dynamics of your group or your workplace? Maybe. I think it probably depends a lot on the workplace, even within big law. I mean, and, and this is one thing I've found that, and this is just general advice for people that while you're thinking about going to a workplace, like really evaluate, not just like, is it big law, but like the specific office, the specific practice group, like the people you'll be working for because your direct reports and the people on your team, like you could be in a wonderful institution with a toxic boss and it'll be terrible. Oh. Or you could be in an overall horrible institution, but if you have an amazing team, like, so get specific. But I think the question in terms of like, can you change your situation? And I think that's different than can you changing the whole thing. I think it depends. And so often a lot of my coaching clients will come to me because they're not happy and they're not satisfied and they don't know. And maybe they think they want to leave their job or they don't know whether they want to leave their job. But often when their well-being is really suffering on a whole lot of dimensions, so often they're completely starved on the three basic needs. So they're freaking exhausted. They haven't moved in six months and they're completely lonely and disconnected. Also, they're tearing themselves to shreds on the inside. And it sounds like there's a ton of like external issues sure. as well. And so where I always start with them is like, first, like, barring anything, like if you have someone who you're working for who is harassing you or is abusing you, like that is a very different situation. There are situations where it's like, this is real. This is like danger signals. You should report this. You should go. But barring that, what I always like to say to people is like, well, why don't we see first if we can just kind of get you a little bit less totally burned out so that you can really like be making this decision from a position of strength rather from like I'm operating on zero energy and cognitive capacity right now and I feel like I have to leave because I'm just in a desperate situation. And so then I think there's a lot of strategies that you can take to try to optimize your situation first with the idea then being once I make these and give it whatever timeline you feel is reasonable, assuming there are th reasons that you would want to stay in this job and they could be anything from financial ones to substantive ones to whatever it is, then you could say, well, I've given this a shot here and from a clear headed position of strength, I'm going to decide whether or not, again, going back to where we started with my big why, what are the things that are most important to me? Let me think about whether the pros outweigh the cons here or vice versa, and then you're then you can make that decision. But I think that in order to do that, you want to first really identify what are the most important things, but also take like a really good look. And this is not at all to be blaming the victim, um, because I often, you know, there are really toxic things going on in the environment, and you can't necessarily make up for them. But as someone who expected everything to be better when I started working in a law school and then realized that the drill sergeant in my head was the most toxic huh. boss that I ever had. And if I didn't address that, nothing was ever going to be different. I think that sometimes people may leave situations 
that they don't necessarily need to leave without giving, at least giving it a shot of, you know, could I change this? That being said, going back to the boundaries piece from earlier, what I say is like, try to implement these practices that you think would make this a better workplace for you and try to communicate the value of them. Because like if your team and your supervisor is just completely averse to you doing any of these things that would enable you to function more optimally and have a higher level of well-being, then like, all right, there's only so much you can do. And right. at that point, you make that decision. But I think that if you can wait a few months, then you owe it to yourself to give it that attempt. I would also add that maybe because we're type A people, but it's so hard for us to get off the tracks, right? And you mentioned this earlier, Jordana, like the fear of changing your role. And I lateraled as a first-year associate when everybody told me, you can't lateral as a first-year associate. And shameless plug for Lateral Hub that makes lateraling much easier than it was in my day. But changing your job and changing your role actually can have really good consequences, even though it's scary. What I love about those answers is that they happen on different levels. And you might not know which level you're on, right? First, you got to get your own house in order because sometimes the problems that you're ascribing to other people are yours, right? Once you deal with your own, unless you disagree, Jordana, go for it. No, I do agree. And this just reminded me of one thing that I think also getting those things in order, if you can learn how to treat yourself with that respect, like then you will recognize and command what you deserve and are like should be receiving from others. So I think that like mm -hmm. it just feeds into that too. I just wanted to make it clear that this is a very much not like a, it's a you problem, not them. A hundred percent. Right. But it is important to look in the mirror first. Then it's important to be public about it. Like you said, Ellie, and see how people treat your boundaries see how people in your group treat your boundaries. We don't have to solve the billable hour and solve big law, right? If we can solve one supervisor who you work for, that's a step in the right direction. Then if you get to be that supervisor, that's a force multiplier step in the right direction. And then sometimes it's not the right place. And that is a much more nuanced and I think sophisticated way of thinking about something that frankly, I think every junior lawyer thinks about pretty early in their career at some point. So we have come to the end. But before I leave, I always like to get a piece of advice, but I'm going to give strict guardrails because I don't want our audience, live audience, to get mad at me because we're going long. One thing for 2024. One thing that you want to give people who are, we have some first-year law students in the audience. We have some of my third-year law students. Congratulations. You're almost getting started. What's one thing for those folks that they can do in 2024. And I'm going to be strict on the one thing. Jordana, you're up first. I'm just going to stay in keeping with what we were just talking about and how you can build that better relationship with yourself as a starting point. And I would say practice self-compassion, but that sounds very general right now. But I think that just one general kind of approach to as you're approaching your work, but also your well-being, is ask yourself if you really believed that you were worthy of everything that you're doing and you didn't feel like you had to like hustle to prove your worth. Like how can you play to win in your job and in your life rather than playing not to lose? And so that just goes back to, it's a different way of saying 
living your life and doing your work in a way that's guided by your values and that can be your values for excellence and or for justice or for whatever it is rather than by fear and just try to fuel yourself with what would you run towards if you weren't fearful of not being good enough? I actually have two things. That's not fair. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm boycotting. I'm just kidding. I'm just messing with Jonah. It's all good. One thing. We often think of anxiety as the fear of something bad happening and the opposite of anxiety as that bad thing not happening. But that's not the opposite of anxiety. The opposite of anxiety is that the world is a comfortable place that is not going to fall apart tomorrow. And so I encourage people, the one piece of advice for 2024 is to just know that the world is there to support you. It's set up in a way that is not falling apart tomorrow. As my wife likes to say, you're on an escalator. She would tell me all the time, don't worry. Like, you're not on a, a ladder that's breaking. You're on an escalator. You went to law school. You got a good job. You're just relax and just do it in a comfortable way. You don't have to claw for the next step. So for 2024, just know that the world is there to support you. It's built in a way life encourages life. And just get on that escalator and enjoy the ride. And don't worry about each next step. I don't know. I don't know if the world is always going to be there to support you. But I will still agree with you because when I think about the opposite of anxiety, anxiety rates, the fear of uncertainty, I would say embracing uncertainty because, again, this going back to your worthy thing, it's like even if the world doesn't support you, like if you believe that you're worthy, you can freaking handle that and rise beyond that. And so, like, I hope, Ellie, that the world is going to support us. I don't know. Um, maybe. I hope so. But I think even if it doesn't or if it feels like it's not, that we can still move through that fear and discomfort and kind of go beyond it. Because that way, even if scary stuff happens tomorrow, then we're still okay. Jordan has given me a hard time today. And with that, I want to thank you both. Seriously, this has been so fun. Um, as I told some people before we started, it is so both weird and amazing to be able to look at the audience's face while we're doing this. What I like about this group is that we're comfortable enough to disagree and push on the nuance. And my wish for everybody listening is that you'll find people and find a community that you can have these conversations with. We live in an age where your community doesn't need to be the person who has the office next to you. It might be some guy that you started following on LinkedIn and DM'd and said, hey, can I interview on your podcast? Or it might be somebody like Jordana, who I found sort of a kindred spirit because someone else who I knew said, you need to meet Jordana. So be the connector, find your place. And thank you so much for all being here. And I hope we can do it again soon. Thanks so much. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.